you need Jesus to make intercession for you. Why? First, you have the enemy accusing you day and night. Look at this guy. Look at Kenzie. Like, he made this. He did this. He sinned against you. The enemy is constantly accusing the saints. But Jesus showed his scar to him. Father, I bled for him. You forgive him. He's interceding for us. The enemy is always accusing the saints. The second thing, we, we live in this flesh. We fall short. We, we sin. We need a high priest that can intercede forever. He said, like, he continually intercede for us so that we can be saved to the uttermost. That last song kind of resonated with the sermon today uh, because we're going to see this mysterious uh, figure in the Bible, Melchizedek. And, I, I mean, every verse, every stanza in that song kind of uh, touch on one reality in the book of in the book of Hebrews. Um, it was so beautiful. That was a good encouragement before we go into the the sermon. Let's pray. Oh Father, the mystery of the cross we cannot comprehend. The mystery of uh, your plan for us, Lord, is revealed in your Scripture. And Lord, when we Behold it, we are in awe of what you do, of what you've done for us, Lord. Um, we know Christ came and he, he had to fulfill the law. He had to fulfill, um, he, has, he had to institute a new covenant, Lord, for us. And that's how we come to you. We, we have this great high priest at your right hand interceding for us. So, Father, I pray that you would... Look on me with uh, favor as I open your word and says and say, thus says the Lord. Lord, I pray that your church will be encouraged, Lord. Remove any distraction, remove any um, anything, Lord, that can hinder the word. We want your word to be encouraging for your church and that our faith will be strengthened and Christ will be glorified. So help us in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So today we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7. So if you can open your Bible, I, mean, I invite you to open your Bible with me in Hebrews chapter 7. And we're going to look at Melchizedek. We're going to read from chapter 7, uh, from chapter 7, verse 1 to 10, and maybe today I can uh, cover verse 1 to 4. Um, I, I was planning to do the whole chapter, but it's like um, I had to go back to the Old uh, Testament, and we're going to see that the passage in Genesis where Melchizedek is found, so we're going to do a little bit of reading in Genesis, um, so... Um, but yet, let, let us read from Hebrews chapter 7, um, starting in, in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descendants from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descendant from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, 
by, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. We're going to stop here for now. And um, hopefully we, I, I, I can um, go further down in some of the application. But that is the moment uh, we've been waiting for. We need to get into Melchizedek. So remember, we are getting in the topic of the priesthood of Jesus Christ, how Jesus is a high priest, but not according to the order of Melchizedek, uh, not according to the order of Aaron, but according to the order of Melchizedek. So we're going to see Melchizedek. That is the title of my sermon today. Who is this Melchizedek? And maybe an alternative title could be, how is Jesus' high priesthood is patterned after the order of Melchizedek? So now let's get started. We know in the book of Hebrews, the author wants to encourage his audience not to lose heart, not to abandon their faith, not to give up on the Lord Jesus Christ. So he embarked himself into this great endeavor to explain to this group of newly converted to the Christian faith, new believers, he wanted to show them the superiority of Christ above all that pertain in the um, Jewish worship to which they were tempted to go back to. Um, he's, he wants to show them that Christ is better, and you're going to hear me say that over and over again because that's the purpose of the book. Don't go back to the old uh, Jewish religion system, but press on into Christ. Persevere in Christ. So we saw that every element of the Jewish religion is measured up to Christ, and Christ is proven to be superior to all of them. So the teaching of Melchizedek is no different. He wants to show that there is two high priests, or two patterns of high priests, and Melchizedek is the greater one. And Christ, his priesthood is patterned after Melchizedek. The reason he does that is because um, he wants to encourage the, this church, you can say these believers. He wants to um, stir them, to boost their faith, you know, um, they, they, they lost confidence. They were persecuted. And uh, they were sluggish. They were dull of hearing. Um, yeah, in, even in chapter 12, we're going to see that they had droopy hands and knees, and they needed to be corrected and disciplined to, like, hey, be firm. Continue the race, even though the Lord disciplined you, but it's for your good. So they needed a boost. So Melchizedek is a boost, is, a, is that. It's a mean, it's a, a mean by which the, the author of Hebrews is trying to encourage the people. And since chapter 5, he wanted to get into Melchizedek, but he, he could not, because, uh, not because Melchizedek is a tough topic. I mean, for me, it's tough. I mean, I don't have a background in, Jew, uh, in Jewish um, culture and teaching, but for them, they, they know these things. Um, um, but he had to stop a little bit and uh, lay some groundwork, like do some plowing in the heart so they can receive uh, this teaching on Melchizedek. We read back in, five, in chapter 5, verse 5 and 6, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed to by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And verse 6 says, he, as he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that's when he wanted to start talking about Melchizedek. But he could not. Verse 10, chapter 5, being Christ being designated by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And about this, about Melchizedek, we have much to say, but it's hard to explain because you are becoming dull of hearing. So we saw that. 
they couldn't get this solid food because Melchizedek is meat, it's solid food, but it's like you, you need milk. Um, you're not mature to receive that. So what he does, he goes and does two things, give them a warning and give them an encouragement. The warning is don't go back to the old covenant system. And he gave them example. There are people who did that, and what happened to them, it's impossible for them to be restored to repentance because they put Christ again to open shame. But he says, but in your case, you who stay, who persevere in Christ, you are this uh, good land who produce a good crop. You are showing fruit. They were, they had zeal, um, they, they loved the saints, they were serving the saints, and he said, I'm sure of better things, things pertaining to salvation. So we see that. We saw, hey, don't do this, but continue in your faith, continue persevering to Christ. And at the end of chapter 6, we saw that um, he, he told them, if you continue, you have the promises of God. Christ is the anchor of your soul. In verse 20, he said, Jesus has gone as a foreigner on our behalf. That means Jesus entered um, heaven and is seated as the right hand of Christ, uh, the right hand of God in earth is sitting for us. And he became a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then we have verse 1 of chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, so we're getting the answer to our question, who is this Melchizedek? So we're getting into the meat now. We read this, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So we're going to read through Genesis chapter 14. That's where we have the, pat, the story of Melchizedek. It's, a, it's a, a 20 plus verses. I'm going to try to go through it real quick, but bear with me. We, I'm trying to go uh, somewhere with this. So if you, if you want to turn and follow with me, Genesis 14. So that's where we find Melchizedek. And but I want, to, I want you to see the story, like the storyline, what's, what's going on here. Verse 1. In the days of Emrephel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, Kedoleomir, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma. Shemabir, king of, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years that they served Kerdoleomir, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. Stop right here. So it's giving us something that was going on in this time. He's giving us a little background of what was going on. We have two group of kings. They are going at war with each other. So these kings, they were not ruling like great nations, you know, um, like in the time of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, like he was a, like a, a mighty king. Like he had peoples and nations under his, his rule. But these were like... Um, uh, they call them like city-states uh, kind of king. You know, like we have, let's say, for like, the way I can explain it, like let's say we have Austin and we have the mayor of Austin. That would be the king. And you have the mayor of San Antonio. That would be another king. The mayor of Houston, the mayor of Dallas. All these are, would be king in that time. And, um, yeah, they were like, these were city, cities. And, um, yeah, they, they were doing one thing. They were trying to, have the weaker one pay them tribute. Like, if you're a weaker city, like, you would pay tribute to the bigger one. Let's say Austin is bigger than Temple, so I will, the mayor would say, like, hey, pay me tribute, otherwise I'm going to conquer you. So that was, what, that was what was going on here. So weaker cities would pay tribute to the stronger ones. 
So Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Zoar, they pay tribute to Keloleomir and his kings for 12 years. And on the 13 years, they're like, 13 years, like, stop, I'm not going to do that anymore. So this guy, like, they, they were mad, like, okay, you're not paying your dues, so I'm going to come for you. So Kedoleomir and all his kings, like, went and, and uh, they, did, they did this. Verse 5, in the 14th year, Kedoleomir and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zunzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavet Kirathim, the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Perin, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmesphat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Let's stop right here. So what's going on here? So if you, if you have a map, I, I wish I could bring a map here. Um, so let's say you have, this is the land of uh, Judah or like Israel. Like uh, Imagine like they, they didn't split yet. So you have the far north, which is then, and up here is Syria. So these kings, they come from Syria. They go alongside the river Jordan, and they like, waging war against all these little villages. They go, they go, and they go all the way down to the far south, and then they come back into the land going this way. So they, they went along the coast by the Jordan and coming back up. <clears throat> Verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admon, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bila, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedoleomir, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Aria, king of Elisar, four kings against five. So we have a war. Five versus four. Verse 10. Now the, va- the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pit. That is like, uh, you know, the, the substance you have, asphalt. Um, or they call it the tar pits. Um, so imagine like when Sodom and Gomorrah were like, when the Lord throws sulfur um, on Sodom and Gomorrah, and when this thing would touch the ground, it's like, it would like a blaze. Um, and remember, Zohar was spared because um, Lot was fled there. But, um, but verse 10 um, so they were, um, now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen, bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them. So they fell into those pits. And the rest fled to the hill country. So they were defeated. Defeated. So the five kings lost the battle and they fled for their life. Verse 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the prov- provisions and went their way. And verse 12 is, is when, where things started to become more interesting. They also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. You know, you can imagine uh, Lot was at home. He was not, you know, involved in the war. But these guys, they're coming back. They, they can, they're taking the spoils. They're taking the people. They're, whatever it's on the path, they're taking everything. So he took Lot. 13, verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abraham, the Hebrew, who was living in, by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abraham. So Abraham had friends and allies in the land of Canaan, and they came and gave him the report of what happened. Verse 14, when Abraham heard that his kinsman Lot had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Den. So Den is like, like I said, it's all the way up north. At that time, Den was not even born, but Moses wanted to 
give people like us, like when we're reading, to have a picture, to have a map. So he'd say, okay, the place where Den would be, that's how far they go. Um, and um, so from the place where Abraham was until, uh, to Den was about like 150 miles. Uh, so like 318 men, I think they're like young guys, you know. they like in their... 20s and, and they like you know, you know they had muscle they had like you know the stamina uh, maybe like brother Jason who has stamina I'm like weak I don't but yeah I would not survive one night but they went overnight and caught up with them and verse 15 um, and he divided his forces against them by night he and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah north of Damascus. So they went all the way past then into Syria, into Damascus. So it's, it's a, lot of, a lot of miles. Like I think from here to Denton is about like 300 miles. So it's like, imagine those men like going from here to Denton and fighting and conquering people. It's like on foot. 16, verse 16. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possession and the women and the people. Verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Kedolaramir and the kings were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shave. So we see Abraham is coming back and the king of Sodom is, is coming and like, I'm going to receive you. Thank you for bringing back the people. And then we have verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And we have this parenthetical explanation or information. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And that's it. The, the chapter continues. And the king of Sodom and said to Abraham, give me the, the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you, say, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the men had eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. So Abram said, the glory is to the Lord. I don't want you to make me rich. I don't want you to give me anything. The Lord gave me success. The Lord gave me wealth. Thank you. The only thing we're going to account for is the food that we ate because we did probably needed food and drink for their journey. And he's like, nope, I'm not receiving anything from you unless you say you made me rich. So Abraham wanted to give glory to God. He wanted to give glory where... Glory is due, and the glory belongs to God. He said, I lifted my hand to God most high. God, thank you. You gave me victory. And that's, it. that's an attitude we should have. Um, uh, sometimes, like, people, like, you know, they'd be nice to you, but we, we kind of take it. Um, I, I fall sometimes for that. Someone, like, saying, like, hey, you did well. I'm like, uh, no, all glory be to God. That's the response we need to have. All the glory be to God. But that's a... That's a parenthetical um, thing uh, to, to learn from Abraham. Okay, so this is the passage about Melchizedek. And we, we see, like, there are a couple of things I want you to note before we go back to um, chapter 7 of Hebrews. The first thing is that Melchizedek is a interruption in the story. Like you have Kedoleomir and the king of Sodom and Gomorrah, so two groups, they're trying, they, they tell you what's going on. And on the way back, Abraham 
met this mysterious guy out of nowhere. So the first thing to note is, is that um, Melchizedek is an interruption. There is no introduction for him, like the king of Sodom, like they were, like they, they were telling you what's, what was going on, but he just showed up like a blip on the radar and then disappeared. Second thing we need to know, that's the only passage in the Bible up to this point about Melchizedek. We only have three verses about him. And Christ's priesthood will be patterned after the order of this guy. Aaron, if you, like, if you look in the Bible, we have about 342 verses about him. Three verses, verses 300 plus. And Christ is patterned after Melchizedek, and Christ is greater than Aaron. I want you to keep that in mind. And the, the third thing I want us to see is like the, it's short, like it's brief. Like he comes, bless Abram, and go. It goes. He, so, and we have a silence. This happened around um, 2000 BC, right? Some author says like, yeah, 2000 before Christ. And then we, we hear about Melchizedek again. 1,000 years later, in Psalm 110, verse 4. Let's read it real quick. So, 2000 BC, we see Melchizedek, silence in the Bible, and 1,000 years later, David, he wrote Psalm 110. This psalm is often quoted. Jesus quoted this uh, psalm um, when he was talking to the Pharisees. But verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. You, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's the second passage where we, men- we have a mention of him. And then the third passage is in the book of Hebrews. And the author is like, dedicated like three chapters to kind of unpack this doctrine of Melchizedek. So God made a promise to David that he will have a descendant that will sit on the throne forever. So David's line was guaranteed that someone will be on the throne forever. That's the promise. In 2 Samuel 7, the Lord says, David, because you have a heart after the Lord, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to cause your kingdom to be forever. And that is a promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And David, as he was you know, writing the psalm, and the Lord gave him a revelation. Verse 4 is about the Messiah, the coming Messiah. And that Messiah will not only be a king, but also a priest. So David, like, Lord... I'm going to have someone on my throne. I'm writing down this, this psalm to worship you, to, to tell about the reign of this um, Messiah, this King Messiah, but he will be also a priest. And the Lord sealed that with, a, with an oath. I sworn and I will not change my mind, the Lord says. wanted to say in passing, sometimes the Lord, the Lord doesn't have to swear anything, like, you know, to take a note. Like, the Lord says something, we do it. Yes, Lord. But he does it. This is, like, blowing my mind. The Lord does it. Why? For our sake. Because we people, we forget sometimes. The Lord said he will take, take care of us. And we start worrying. We start being anxious. But the Lord, like we read in, in, in Hebrews 6, like, the Lord cannot lie. Two unchangeable things, um, which is the promise and the oath of God. The Lord promised something, I guarantee you, it's going to come to pass. The Lord affirms it with an oath to show like, yes, he means business. All right. So let's go back to Hebrews now. This is the where we're going to get um, into... Melchizedek. Verse 1 says, um, He is king of Salem, 
and also priest of the Most High God. There are four things I want us to, to see here. He's, the first thing is he's a king priest of the Most High God. The second thing, he's a king priest who blesses. He blesses Abraham, right? The third thing he does, he, he endures. He lives forever. And the fourth thing is that he receives. Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So those are the four things I want, to, I want us to see through, throughout this. But let's look at the first one. Melchizedek is a king priest, a king and a priest. Outside of Jesus and Melchizedek, Scripture identifies no one to be both a king and a priest. You have Melchizedek, who was not a Jew, by the way. The law came like 500 years after uh, Abraham met him. And in the law, the Lord had prescription. The king cannot be a priest and vice versa. The priest cannot fulfill the function of a king. I want to give you two examples of kings in the Bible who lost their place and see the consequences of God, um, the consequences of, of their sin, and the Lord punished them. The first one is King Saul. Verse 8 of 2 Samuel 13 King Saul offered an unlawful sacrifice. Let me read it real quick. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. Samuel told him, hey, I'm going to come and offer sacrifices and, and bless the people. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So like, oh, I'm losing my people. Let me do something to get the people. So what he did, verse 9, so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? So he explained to Samuel, yeah, I had to do this because I was losing the people. Verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For, the Lord, the, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom forever over Israel. But now your kingdom shall not continue. So that was the punishment of God. He, he said, you won't be cut off. And we know that Saul died. His sons, like Jonathan and the other brothers, like they died. The first generation was cut off. And then David was the the other, from the tribe of Judah, he's the one to whom the kingdom was given. So some people say like Paul, uh, not Paul, Saul. Saul lost the kingdom uh, in, in when he did not uh, um, kill Agag. But no, it happened here where like he offered sacrifice. So that was not his role. That was a role for a priest. The king would, should not do that. That's not... For you, Saul. The next one, the next example I'm going to give you to show you, the Lord did not allow anyone except the Levite to offer sacrifices. Anyone remember who is King Uzziah? Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, high and lifted up. The throne of his robe filled the temple. What did King Uzziah do? And why, like Isaiah mentioned his name? If you go to 2 Chronicles 26, 16 to 21. So he was flourishing. He was like a good, like, you know, the Lord gave him success. Verse 16 in 2 Chronicles 26 says this, But when he was strong, he grew proud. So he became puffed up. It's like, I'm a great king. I can do whatever I want. But the Bible says, to his destruction. 
For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Whoa. The king, like, lost his place here. He went into the temple and offered incense. But Azariah, the priest, went after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priest, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. But he was so puffed up. Look what he says. Then Uzziah, Uzziah was angry. Now he had a, a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. The Lord struck him right away with leprosy. So they took him out and look at his, what happened to him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper, he lived separated from everyone. So you're like, the Lord told him, hey, you want to play with me? This is what happened to you. So we see that in the Old Testament, there was no provision for someone to be at the same time king and priest. In the law, there is nothing, like nothing of that sort. But we have Melchizedek. He is king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. I think that's why the Lord have him in the Bible, so that he can be a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ had to fulfill all these foreshadows. He has to be king, prophet, high priest, the lamb, the Passover lamb. Jesus, the Lord is... He said, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. So the Lord is orchestrate all these to exalt Christ so that um, no one can say, why did you do this, Lord? Because the, the, the accusation can be this way, but Jesus Christ is not a Levite. And I think the author is going to mention that later in the, some of the verses. Why is he a high priest? He's from the lineage of David. But the Lord said, no, no. I give you an example already with Melchizedek who was a king and a priest, and he was appointed by me. And the verse in, in chapter 5 says, Christ was appointed by God. So, Melchizedek was a king and a priest. And then what he did? He blessed Abraham, the second part of the verse says, he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. I wanted to kind of explain it a little bit like the Most High God, El Elyon. Um, so in the Old Testament, we had... Um, Plurality, all these nations, they had plurality of God. But it was not kind of, it was not the polytheism, um, like multiple gods, but it, they had hierarchy for those gods. And I think this is called, um, I had it here, henotheism. So you have mid-range gods, you have high gods, but to distinguish God from all these gods, he's the most high God, the God of heaven and earth. And El Elyon is, is found nowhere in any of the pagans' language. Like, they don't have a word for that. It's God is the God high, higher than any other gods. So he, he's the priest of the God most high, Second thing, he's a king who comes out and bless Abraham. There is a mystery about him. 
How does he know the one true God? How does he know the most high God? Like Canaan is the land of pagans, right? All these nations, like they were worshiping false God, all these different ranked God. Remember when Joshua was going into the land to take possession of it, the Lord says, don't pay attention, don't mingle with those God. They're going to cause you to forget the Lord, forsake the Lord. And we know what happened. There is judgment. Every time they go and mingle with the Canaanites, the Lord brings judgment on them. So, but, like I said, Melchizedek was appointed by God. We don't know why the Lord kept it a mystery. The Lord chose not to put enough data for us in the Bible, but it's enough for us to have this passage in Hebrews 7 to encourage us to trust in Jesus, to, to show the greatness of, of, of his priesthood. All right. Let's go now to verse 2. Before that, we, we see that he blessed Abraham. For some reason, Abraham knew him. For some reason, they knew each other. They know, like, hey, you are serving the real God. As opposed to, like, when he met the, the other king, you see the interaction is completely different. Like, I don't want anything from you. Um, I, I, I raised my hand to the, I lifted my hand to the God Most High. But when you get to Melchizedek, you see, like, we kind of brother here. Like you, we serve the same. We serve the same God. And Melchizedek blessed him. So that's the second thing I wanted to see. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Blessed be Abraham. And um, yeah, he blessed him with bread and wine, which is also like bread and wine, confirming the typology here. He is a type of Christ, reminding you of the Lord's Supper, right? So now, verse 2. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. So Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. That's a huge amount of, it's a huge fortune. It's, I don't know, like, if you have all these nations and people, like, he came back with them, and it's like, I'm going to give you a tenth of all that. I, I, I couldn't find how much it was estimated, but it, imagine it's a big fortune. Uh, and he says, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then, he is also king of Salem. That is, King of peace. So the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. It's two Hebrew words, uh, or it's a compound word, uh, Melek, which is king, and Zedek, which is um, righteous. And he says, yeah, the king, my king is righteous, or he's a righteous king. And the Lord, you know, name in the Bible, they have meaning, right? You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. Jesus, Joshua, it's another trans- translation of Joshua, which is Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. That's why he's called, you shall call his name Jesus because he came to save us. So his name means king of righteousness. So outside of the other kings in, of that time, he was different. He was a king of righteousness. But we saw like, we, we don't hear that about the king of Sodom and, Sodom and Gomorrah. We don't hear anything about them. The second thing, king of Salem. King of Salem, which is king of peace. Who is king of peace in the Bible? Jesus Christ. Who is the king of righteousness? Jesus Christ. So in verse 2, the author of Hebrews is linking Melchizedek with Jesus Christ. He's showing, hey, he's a king of righteousness. 
who is the king of righteousness? Jesus Christ. He is the king of Salem, who is the king of peace? Jesus Christ. So he's linking Melchizedek with Jesus. And Salem is where we have ancient Jerusalem. Um, because we, see, we read in the Psalm, Psalm 76 says, Zion and Salem, so it kind of gives the connection. It's, it's the Salem became Jerusalem, the, king, the, 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 the city of the king. All right. So the connection is made between Melchizedek and Jesus Christ. Jesus is king of righteousness. Melchizedek is a king of righteousness by definition of his name. And he's a king of Salem, which is a king of peace. We know Jesus Christ is the king of peace. Verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And this verse is where... <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> That's why most people, like, they stumble. He is without father and mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resemble the Son of God. <clears throat> Sorry. Resemble the Son of God. Resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So what does that I'm going to see what does that, what it doesn't mean, okay? It's not the link, but the Christ sent me a link to, like, Melchizedek, and it was a Mormon link. <laughs> so the Mormon, they, they, they have this, this teaching in their church, right, that currently in the Mormon church, you have the office of Melchizedek. And it's an entity that governs everything in the church when it comes to, like, the gospel, the worship, the other offices they have in the... In, and it's just a wrong... It's a heresy that we need to run from. But be, beside the Mormons and their her, heresy, what does it mean? He, he is without father and mother or genealogy. In the record, in Genesis 14, we read... And if you continue reading, that's the only mention of Melchizedek. And the Bible doesn't give you any data about who was his father, who was his mother, and genealogy. Genealogy in the Bible is really important. Why? They help you trace um, people and to make sure, like, hey, this person, yeah, we can trace him all the way back to Adam. One of my favorite genealogies in the Bible is Luke chapter 3. I, I, I'm going to read it for you. Uh, it's, it's a bit of... It's the genealogy of Jesus Christ, but on his mother's side, Mary. Okay? And Matthew is on his father's side, um, Joseph. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, Luke 3, 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30, 30 years of age, being the son, as we suppose, of Joseph, the son of Eli. So this Eli is, not, um, is Mary's um, uh, father. The son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matatias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, Nahum the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Matatias, the son of Simeon, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosem, the son of Almadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joim, the son of Mathath, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, you see the link, the tribe of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Matataya, the son of Nathan, the son of David. Oh, sorry, that's that's 
that's the second Judah, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashan, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Ezrin, the son of Perez, the son of Judah. This is the tribe of Judah. The son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ryu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arpexad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalaleel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So Jesus can be traced all the way to Adam, all the way to God. So genealogies in the Bible, they help you identify who you are, who, what family you're part of. In Haiti, like my mom would give me a story, like when she was growing up, they would tell her, don't marry those people because they steal goats. They have, I mean, I don't know. That's what they know for. They're known for it. And so people need to know like your identity, if you're credible, right? The same thing happened with... Um, after the deportation to Babylon, right, um, the people, like, they were coming back, and Ezra and Nehemiah, they were, like, saying, hey, you guys said you're part of the, uh, the, the Aaronic uh, lineage. Show me proof. If they couldn't show that, they were put on the side until they could show that they were, pro- they were legitimate um, high priest. But for Melchizedek, we have nothing. We, we, he just come on the scene and for split seconds and then we don't, we don't hear about him anymore. So that's what he means, like he has no genealogy. We, cannot, we don't have any record in the Bible to trace him to a lineage. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life. People are like, Whoa they come up with different explanation for this. The first thing, um, some people said, it's probably Shem, because um, so, some, record, some records show that Shem was uh, alive during the time of Abraham, and he, after Abraham died, he lived 35 more years. But he cannot be Abraham, he cannot be Shem, because we have a genealogy for Shem, right? The Bible just said there is no genealogy for him. Some people, say, some people say he's an angel. Or even the angel of the Lord. But again, it cannot be an angel. We don't have any record in the Bible of an uh, angelic being coming and rule over man. Second thing, like if it was the angel of the Lord, we don't see Abraham worshiping him. Every time we have an interaction with someone uh, and the angel of the Lord, they always like fall on their face in worship. The parents of Samson, oh, we saw the Lord face to face and we did not die. So it's not the angel of the Lord. The Bible doesn't say that. Some people would say it's the pre-incarnate Christ. So Christ came in the Old Testament and is after the order of himself. No. Um, yeah, some people would say that's a Christophany or um, theophany, God appearing in the human flesh. Every time we have a Christophany in the Bible, the Bible is pretty clear about it. First Corinthians, Christ is that rock in the wilderness. In John chapter 12, Jesus said, Isaiah saw my glory and he worshiped. So the Bible is clear. Whenever there is an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, it, it makes sure like he identifies it for us. So what does that mean? He has no beginning of days or end of life. Basically, they don't have his birth certificate. And they don't have the certificate of when he was deceased. That's all. They don't know when he, he was born. They don't know when he was dead. But because of this um, 
aspect of his life, he resembled the Son of God, who is eternal. So that's why I wanted to mention this third point. Like, he is a priest king who endures forever, not because he has the same attribute as God or Jesus Christ, but because the way his life was presented to us in the Bible, he resembled Jesus. And even the verse says it, but resembling the Son of God, he continues forever a priest. That verb resembling is the verb make like. See that he is compared to Christ and not the other way around. Christ is not compared to him. He is compared. He, is, he resembles the Son of God. It's the same word we have in the parables when Jesus says in Matthew 13, the kingdom of God can be compared to a man who goes and sows seed. So it's the same word. So Melchizedek is a man we just don't have record when he was born, when he was dead. And because of that, we can use the typology, the foreshadowing. He is the type, and Jesus Christ is the anti-type. So Melchizedek was a king priest. Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He endures forever. Melchizedek is the one, is the one who blessed Abraham. And the last thing I wanted to... Um, to mention, he receives. In verse 4, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoil. Abraham gave him a tenth of the spoil. And he receives it and he goes on his way. All right, in terms of application, I find my application in the same chapter. Verse 11. Why we need a new priesthood. Verse 11 says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there be, would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? The law could not achieve perfection for us. That's why we needed Jesus. Jesus accomplished perfection for us. And as people on this side of history, we don't understand that we always need a high priest. We need someone to go for us and be to go to God on our behalf. We have grace, grace, but Someone needs to go before us. Someone needs to take our sin and present it to God. And like the high priest would enter the holies of holies and sprinkle the mercy seat. Jesus right now enters the heaven and interceding for us. And the Bible says in the, in the same passage, he did once and for all. The priest had to do it over and over and over again, showing that it was not perfect. Christ gave us a righteousness because he's king of righteousness. And we are pleased. God is pleased with us. So perfection could not be attained through the law, to, Levitical, to the Levitical priesthood. And that's why we have to have another type of priest after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 12 says, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. The priesthood change. The law has to change. That's why people are, people like the Seventh-day Adventists, they, they're wrong. Like, um, the law changed. Why do you want to keep the Sabbath? Why do you want to keep following those diets and, and laws. Paul says, if you want to 
if you want to keep the law, you have to keep all of them. And I guarantee you, like, they, 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 they fall flat on the first one, flat on their face. But the law had changed. You and I, we have a different interaction with the law. Now we have the law of Christ. We have the law of Jesus. If you are my disciple, you would love one another. You will keep my commandments. So the law changed because the priesthood changed. We have no condemnation because we are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So perfection is achieved through Jesus Christ, through this new type or new order of priesthood that he is part of, he is after the order of Melchizedek. The law doesn't have the same binding on us. We have a different relationship with the law. The law of Christ binds us now. The third application will be in verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, verse 16, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Using the same example of Melchizedek, who had no beginning of day, beginning of end, beginning of day and end of life, which kind of show his eternality, Christ, he says, become a priest not on basis of legal requirement concerning body descent. So he doesn't have to be from the lineage of Aaron, but because of this, but by the power of an indestructible life. Jesus rose from the dead, and he ascended to heaven, and now he's reigning. He is eternal. And that's the guarantee we have. Those high priests, they were replaced every year. I think they have counted about 85 or 86 high priests, but they have to be replaced. But Christ, his life is indestructible. He gives us eternal life. This is eternal life, that they believe in you and in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, John 17, 3. So in Christ, we have the same life that is in Jesus, is in us. We have indestructible life in him. And the last application is in verse 25. For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, oh, sorry, that's 26. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he is always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus always making intercession for us. Because he's a high priest, not according to Aaron, because that that priesthood came to an end, but because it's after the order of Melchizedek. You need Jesus to make intercession for you. Why? First, you have the enemy accusing you day and night. Look at this guy. Look at Kenzie. Like, he made this. He did this. He sinned against you. The enemy is constantly accusing the saints. But Jesus show his scar to him. Father, I bled for him. You forgive him. He's interceding for us. The enemy is always accusing the saints. The second thing, we, we live in this flesh. We fall short. We, we sin. We need a high priest that can intercede forever. He says, like, he continually intercedes for us so that we can be saved to the uttermost. Being saved to the other most, what does it mean? You are saved now, but also you have to make it to glory. It's this idea in the Bible you have already and not yet. You're already saved, but also you will be saved when you meet Jesus Christ face to face. 
Jesus can save us to the uttermost. He gave us eternal life. We cannot lose it. And he says, he's a guarantee of a better promise. He's a guarantee of a better covenant. And next time, we're going to get into what it means to be a guarantor of a better covenant. This is our hope. Jesus Christ, save us to the uttermost. Jesus Christ keeps us. For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Jesus, who is a high priest after the pattern of Melchizedek, we have assurance of eternal life. We have eternal life because he lives forever. He lives to intercede for us. We know in this life we have pain and toil and fight against sin, Lord, but Jesus is our forerunner. He goes before us, and in him we are more than conqueror. So I pray that, Lord, we would hang on to the promises of Christ. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. He is faithful to save us to the uttermost. He is faithful to keep us until the end. He is faithful, Lord, to save us. In his name I pray. Amen.